This is 99% Invisible. I'm Roman Mars. What I've done is filled this out. I'll leave it on the door so that the owner is aware of the fact that we made a visit and that uh, they need to take care of the lawn. Uh, they may not even be aware of the fact that the city of Gainesville has an ordinance that prohibits uh, excessive growth. In communities across America, lawns that are brown or overgrown are considered especially heinous. Elite squads of dedicated individuals have been deputized by their local governments or homeowners associations to take action against those whose lawns fail to meet community standards. Call them lawn enforcement agents. Producer Sam Greenspan. This is his story. In 2008, a lawn enforcement agent stopped by a home in Hudson, Florida, outside of Tampa. Maybe the agent snapped some photos, maybe there were some boxes ticked off a checklist. Whatever the agent's field methods, he or she went back to Lawn Enforcement HQ and sent out a letter. They send out letters stating that, you know, your your lawn's not up to paw, you, know, you have a lot of bare spots, you have a lot of weeds. My sprinkler system was busted and I didn't have the money at that time to repair it. That's Joe Prudente, who, with his wife Pat, owns the home in question. Lawn enforcement thought that the Prudente's lawn was too brown, too weedy, and not well-maintained. This was not the first such letter that the Prudentes had received. But Joe Prudente says he is no deadbeat. Over the course of a few years, he had tried to keep a clean, green lawn as best he could. He watered it. He put down grass seeds and grass plugs. He even dug up and completely replanted the grass in his front yard three times over. I've done it three, three times. The first time I had a company do it, they charged me like, you know, $1,200. And I said, I'm not doing this, you know, every time it dies. Joe met with his homeowners association, but they were not cutting him any slack. So then finally they did some ruling that that if I didn't put sod down the whole place, a law firm was sending it to the judge, to the court, and see what would happen. I said, go ahead. You know, what are they going to do, lock me up? They're not going to put me in jail for, for not putting grass down. I said, that's crazy. Shortly thereafter, Joe got another letter. It was a court order to turn myself in or get arrested. I didn't want everybody to see police coming to the house and caught me away for, they probably go, oh, look at this guy. He's probably robbed the bank. You know, you know how neighbors are. So I did it the, the, the quiet way. I turned myself in. At 66 years old, Joe Prudente, an otherwise law-abiding retiree from Long Island, presented himself to the Pasco County Jail wearing a Grandpa Gone Wild t-shirt. He was apprehended on allegations of failing to properly maintain his lawn to community standards. There was no bail. No bail until the sod was done. Now, fortunately for Joe, the local paper had written about the arrest and detainment of a senior citizen for having a brown lawn. Word got around, and dozens of people came to help dig up and resaw the Prudente's lawn. Joe was released from jail the next day. Most cases of homeowners brushing up against lawn enforcement do not end in jail time. But Joe Prudente was not the only person to have ended up behind bars because of a landscaping issue. Frank Yos of Grand Prairie, Texas, did two days in jail for having an overgrown lawn. And Gary Suttle, a 75-year-old former city council member of Rizal, Texas, had a warrant issued for her arrest until some neighborhood kids came by and mowed the lawn that she had been unable to take care of on her own. There's a paradox to the lawn. 
On the one hand, it is the pedestal on which sits the greatest symbol of the American dream, the home. And homeowners are independent and free and have domain over their own little corner of the world. And yet, and yet, the lawn is the least free will-controlled landscape insofar as people are constantly pressured, either by formal or informal institutions, into managing it just like their neighbors. That's Paul Robbins, director of the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And um, the author of the book, Lawn People, How Grasses, Weeds, and Chemicals Make Us Who We Are. Grass may be a plant, but a lawn is a designed object. A lawn is an entirely designed object. That kind of imaginary, nice, clean, green lawn, that's an entirely engineered landscape. And the reason we maintain this landscape, says Paul Robbins, is about everything except the grass. It's about everything else. It's about community. It's about proper moral behavior. It's about participating in the life of a community. Even in the beginning, lawns were always about something else. The lawn, or really the idea of lawns, began with art. The Italians, for a while, were painting these sort of pastoral scenes. Scenes full of grasslands and hedges. Grasslands and hedges that didn't actually exist. No, I mean, these are pastoral images out of somebody's imagination of what the landscape should look like. And these paintings got popular among Great Britain's landed elite. They liked the paintings so much that they wanted to live in them. What the British were doing is designing their landscapes to look like what was trending in Italian painting. So life definitely followed art in this case. A style of English garden developed where a prominent feature is a green lawn. And right away, everyone recognized that these soft, verdant grasses were more than just a nice place to walk around barefoot outside. A lawn was about power. A lawn was a way for these English elites to show off they were so wealthy that they didn't need this land to grow food. They could afford to let their fields go fallow. And could afford to keep grazing animals and scythe-wielding peasants to keep it short. When European colonists set sail for the New World, they took grasses with them. But lawns were still mostly for rich people and, eventually, public parks. It wasn't until the turn of the 20th century, with the first suburbs, that lawns started appearing around the homes of the middle class. And here is where the lawn shifts from being about the flagrant display of wealth to a moral force for the good of civilization. Andrew Jackson Downing, considered by some to be the father of American landscape architecture. Who is slightly older than the other guy considered to be the father of American landscape architecture, Frederick Law Olmsted. I know you're thinking it, nerds. Downing wrote in 1850, quote, When smiling lawns and tasteful cottages begin to embellish a country, we know that order and culture are established. There was kind of a social message, which is that if you make it look like this, we will make better citizens, as opposed to, right, having um, living in squalor and the urban areas are considered evil and miasmic and problematic. A well-maintained lawn, in other words, is the opposite of a broken window. Exactly. It's precisely that. Most people think whatever's going on outside the house, if it's civilized, manicured, and well-maintained, reflects something that's going on good inside the house. With the start of the great American suburbanization in the 1950s, suddenly middle-class people were owning larger and larger swaths of land. So covering it with grass was partly utilitarian. You know, you have this big piece of land. You gotta do something with it. But this connection between lawn and order only grew stronger. And our lawns got bigger. We did an air photography study and used tax assessor's data for Franklin County, which is 
Columbus, Ohio. So it's a very typical American city. And we found that about 25% of the entire county was turf grass lawns. That doesn't include football fields. It doesn't include golf courses. 25%. A quarter of the entire city of Columbus is lawns. Grass living a completely unnatural life cycle. We don't let grass grow tall enough to go to seed, but we also water and fertilize it to keep it from going dormant. We don't let it die, but we also don't let it reproduce. The author Michael Pollan wrote that lawns are nature purged of sex and death. Feed, weed, cut, repeat. Paul Robbins interviewed dozens of people about their lawns for his book. People told him that if their grass got too long, neighbors would come by and ask if their lawnmower was broken, if they needed to borrow one. People who wouldn't mow their lawn might find an aggressive neighbor had done it for them in the middle of the night or while they were out of town. You mow because everybody else does. The free market, American, free, neoliberal subject who does as he or she pleases would just say, to hell with my neighbors, I'm just going to let my lawn grow. But instead, they do the communist thing, right, which is, which is collective management of what is essentially a moral commons. Like, it's not your lawn. It's the whole community's lawn, and you're responsible for this part. Deviate from acceptable community norms, and your community goes to war with you which is how you get cases like Joe Prudente being thrown in jail for failing to keep his lawn up to quote-unquote community standards. One of the guys in my city says, what are you here for, Grandpa? I said, uh, grass. He said, smoking it or selling it? But as much as the lawn seems to be rooted to the American landscape, we may be seeing a transition, at least here out west. We're in an historic drought, and that demands unprecedented action. It's for that reason that I'm issuing an executive order mandating substantial water reduction across our state. California Governor Jerry Brown declared in 2015 that our state would need to cut water use by 25 percent. We're in a new era. Uh, The idea of your nice little green grass getting lots of water every day, uh, that's going to be a thing of the past. Here in California, the lawn is perhaps the most visible symbol of the drought. Water restrictions allow people to water only two or three times a week, down from four or five or even more. In California and Arizona and Nevada, governments are actually paying people to rip out their grass. Prices range from a dollar to as much as four dollars per square foot of turf removed, which homeowners could then use to buy artificial turf or use it for xeriscaping, which is landscaping with things that don't need water, like rocks. Some people are also choosing to put native plants in their yards, which theoretically should grow with rainwater only and would help restore the ecosystem that had been there before. Or you can just let your lawn go brown. California has a bunch of public service announcements that are all like, Get down with brown. We'll get through this drought just fine. Even our lawns. Join the movements and help fight the drought. Get down with brown. Brown is the new green. Do your part to help California fight the drought. Nobody bought a home in this country to have a brown lawn. This is America. We have green grass for a reason here. That's the American dream is to have a green lawn. So invest a little bit in our service and you can have a green lawn during that drought season. This is David Bartlett of Extreme Green Grass. He is decidedly not down with brown. I'm David Bartlett with Extreme Green Grass and we are turning her brown grass green. And he's doing this by literally painting a customer's lawn green. We are spraying on an all-natural, earth-friendly 
product that we manufacture called Extreme Green Grass. It lasts three to six months. When we got there, the customer's grass was golden brown. It hadn't been watered in six months. David uses a spray wand attached to a tank full of a liquid, which he swears is non-toxic. And as he's spraying, it's like magic. Like he's transforming a wheat field into a soccer pitch. Except the grass is still crunchy. Yeah, the crunchiness doesn't change, unfortunately. <laughs> if I could change that process, I'd be rich. You do anything uh, besides green? Yeah, we do white at Christmas season. Maybe it looks like you got a snowy yard. Kind of looks like you went up and got some snow from the mountains. Yeah, any, any like pink or purple orange? Pink? Hey, I'll do that for you, bro. <laughs> David got into this line of work after a friend got him a similar service for his lawn as a gift. David had been working in landscaping and thought he could do a better job than the other companies he had seen. Lawn painting is actually not new. But if you've never heard of it, it's because it's generally only been used on golf courses and pro sports fields. It's only since this most recent drought that lawn painting has come home. When I first heard about lawn painting, I had assumed it would be scoffed at by the lawn obsessives, the kind of people who had Joe Prudente thrown in jail. But a lot of extreme green grasses clients are homeowners associations. Lawn painting is becoming accepted by even the strictest lawn enforcement agencies. It kind of makes you wonder if we as a society are beginning to question the supremacy of the perfectly kept lawn. Maybe we can finally quit lawn shaming each other. This is America. We can always find ways to shame each other. I think it's very, very interesting to see what's happening in California with people getting on each other's case for having green grass. After all these decades of getting on each other's case for not having green grass. That's Paul Robbins again. Now we have a case where the drought has inspired people to really whack one another on the internet or whatever else, sort of shame people for putting water on their lawn. See Twitter, hashtag drought shaming. Paul says it's good that people are looking to conserve water, but the moral architecture of drought shaming is a little too familiar. It's just the newest trend on how people police each other's lawns. It's just another version of the same thing. Like moral outrage that people are not doing their share uh, is sort of a, a natural response to people's land management, just like it was for keeping the lawn green. And so if David Bartlett does his job too well, makes lawns look too much like they get tons of water, his customers might get drought shamed by people who have gotten a little too down with brown. As they say, the grass is always greener, even when it's browner. Invisible was produced this week by Sam Greenspan with Katie Mingle, Avery Truffleman, and me, Roman Mars. Thank you to Isaac Brown and Eric Flagg, directors of the film Gimme Green. That's where the tape of the law enforcement agent that you heard at the beginning of the story originally appeared. We'll have a link to the film on our website. Thanks also to Devin Brown, Robert Fogelson, Brent Green, Sharon Hall, Braden Kay, Kelly Larson, Molly Peterson, Taryn Smith, and Kelly Turner. We are a project of 91.7 KALW San Francisco and produced out of the offices of ArcSign. 
an architecture and interiors firm who is still looking for a couple new people to join their team. You can find details at arcsign.com and you can join us in beautiful downtown Oakland, California. Support for 99% Invisible is provided by Squarespace, the all-in-one website platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website. Squarespace is simple, powerful, and beautiful. They have 24-7 support via live chat and email. All Squarespace-created sites have responsive design, so your website scales and looks great on every device, every time. And every website comes with a free online store if you want it. For a free trial with no credit card required and to start building your website today, Go to squarespace.com and use the offer code INVISIBLE to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. Support is also provided by TeePublic. TeePublic is a platform that empowers designers to sell art and apparel online. Designers can upload their art to TeePublic and sell their work on t-shirts and hoodies and art prints and all kinds of things. You'll get your own branded store and TeePublic will take care of the printing, shipping, and customer service. And every time they sell your design, you get paid. A couple weeks ago, I asked you to share your own art by uploading and tagging it with 99PI. You can check them all out at tpublic.com slash 99PI and shop your favorites. My favorite one is Tea Tree by Martin Z. And while you're there, you can upload your own art and shop for thousands of designs that they have on the site. That's teepublic.com. And finally, week after week, we've been shown nothing but kindness from the folks at Tiny Letter. Email for people with something to say. My boy Carver always has something to say. What do you got to say, Carver? My lawn has been brown for my entire life. Tinyletter.com. It's free, easy, minimal, and powerful. The simplest way to send an email newsletter. From the great people behind MailChimp. Thanks to MailChimp, the Knight Foundation, and beautiful nerds who donated to the great cause, we created Radiotopia from PRX. Oh, and episode number 73 of the Memory Palace, that's called Notes on an Imagined Plaque dot 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 there's lots of other words after that it's essential listening for anyone who loves 99% Invisible it's just perfect you can find the Memory Palace and all the shows in Radiotopia at radiotopia.fm you can find this show and like the show on Facebook we're all on Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram and Spotify but you can listen to every single episode of 99% Invisible and we have pictures and lots of other stuff there too at 99pi.org Radio Topia from PRX.